right, let it shine. This morning, we are going to continue our sermon series in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, in today's text, Paul is going to discuss something that is both pervasive and repulsive. Idolatry. Often when people in the West like us conjure up images of idolatry, we think of something like this. People bowing down before an image, chanting and praising it as mighty and powerful and holy and divine. And while this certainly is a a form of idolatry, what I want to do today is bring it home to us today. Because here's the hard truth. Every single person in this room, myself included, practices idolatry in some shape or fashion. Like there's something about the human heart that is like a little idol-making factory. In fact, it's gotten so bad that we can take something that is good and turn it into something that is ultimate. So what I want to do is I want to define idolatry over the next couple minutes, and I'm going to start off by using the words of an (laughs) eight-year-old. A couple years ago, Darian and I were fostering two young boys, and at one of our family devotions, we came upon the topic of idolatry. And so we talked about with them, you know, what a false god is, and, you know, basically discussing that at the heart of idolatry is loving something more than you love God. And so we tried to make this relevant to them. What are some things that you love, we asked, and they came up with all kinds of things, video games and money. Uh, the youngest one said burritos, and then the wheels started coming off the conversation as they said all the things they love to put on their burrito, and quickly this was getting out of control, so I had to wrap it up. Okay, I said, those things I guess could be idols, <laughs> but how do you know if something is an idol? Like, how do you know if you do, in fact, love something more than you love God? Surprising silence with these boys. So I, you know, patted myself on the back for being a superb question asker. And then I was hammered between the eyes with what the eight-year-old said. He said, you know that it is an idol if you think that you can never be happy without it. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, New York-based Presbyterian Uh, Tim Keller, he says it this way, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God is able to give. And you read that definition and all of a sudden the window is opened up and a light is shining on each of your hearts as you think and imagine the thing that you value, that you deeply value. And I want you to hear me correctly. The object of idolatry does not always have to be a bad thing. The thing that we idolize doesn't have to be bad in and of itself. I mean, Jesus essentially talks about this in Luke chapter 14. He says, if anybody comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what Jesus is not saying there is you need to leave here this morning and go sabotage your relationship with your parents. (laughs) But what he is saying is that your love for Jesus should be so vast, so profound, that your love for your family looks like hatred in comparison. And if you don't love Jesus at that capacity, then you are in some shape or fashion practicing idolatry. 
Let's round out our defining of idolatry. Keller continues, he calls it counterfeit gods. Here's how he talks about them. A counterfeit god is anything so central and so essential to your life that, this is going to sound familiar, should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. And I think that quote and this definition, it gets to the heart of idolatry. Because if I want to know what you really value, I'm not going to ask you what your dreams and aspirations are. No, instead I'm going to ask you a far more potent question. What are your nightmares? What can you not imagine losing? What keeps you up at night thinking that you could lose it? And so, that now lands us to this church in Corinth that we've been talking about in this series. And the subject Paul is going to talk about this morning, this church, as we've been discussing, they idolized many things. They idolized their image. They idolized their standing within the Christian community. They idolized their freedoms and their rights, and all of this was causing disunity and disruption in the community of believers that was meeting there. And Paul, being a good pastor, he wanted to help them navigate this tumultuous season that they were in, and as a good pastor, he used his Bible to do it. And in today's text, what he's going to do is he's going to reach back into these old stories of the Old Testament, which was their Bible, and he's going to pull out these stories of God's people, and he's going to say, let's learn from their mistakes. In fact, that is the reason we have these stories, so that we can be better, because there's something about the human condition that seems to always fall back into these same old habits of idolatry and disunity in the community. And so, Paul kicks us off in chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay, so let's back up for a second. Let's put all of this in its historical context. The Israelites' ancestors, they used to be slaves in Egypt. For 400 years, they were slaves. You can read about this story in the book of Exodus. So they cry out for God to deliver them, and eventually God does hear their cry, and he gives them someone to deliver. The person's name is Moses. He reaches into these people's lives and he pulls them out. And again, this can all be found in Exodus, which we talked about last week. Exodus simply means the exit. This, this was God's exit for these people out of slavery. And there was a very specific path that he wanted these people to go on. And here in Paul, we have his summary of what happened. Paul says that they were all under a cloud, now, if you've ever been in the Egyptian desert, you know that a cloud that guided the people was a blessing in more ways than one, right? He provided them, God gave them not only shade in the day, but he gave them light at night, a pillar of light that they could follow. He also gave them food, which is called manna, which in Hebrew simply means, what is this? 
which is essentially what we would say if food fell from heaven. He gave them quail to eat. He gave them water to drink, a rock in the desert that Moses would hit with his staff and water would flow from it. Everything these people needed to escape and survive, it was provided for them. And the same spirit that delivered our ancestors, Paul says, is the same spirit that now is in the person of Jesus. So as we kick off here, I want to talk about two major things, real quick. Two things that Paul is doing in this. Number one, he's retelling these stories of old. He's enlightening people with the knowledge of Jesus that's woven throughout them. He's pointing people to the source of all goodness and all glory that all praise should be pointed to. And he says, hey, go to the very beginning of your Bible, and you're going to see Jesus written throughout its entire pages. So that's the first thing he's doing. And the second thing he is doing, he is grafting all people into this story. Notice what he says at the beginning, brothers that are fathers. The problem is that for this Corinthian church, it was primarily made of Greek believers, not Jewish believers. So by blood, that these were not their ancestors. But Paul is reminding them that because of what Jesus did, all believers are part of the same family, the same body, the same community. These are our stories, and it's time we start learning from them. So Paul is reminding this church of all the way God has provided for his people, freedom from slavery, shade in the desert, food and water to sustain them, a promise of a land. And you would think that they would respond with gratefulness, with an unwavering devotion. But they don't, do they? No, verse 5, the very last verse, gives us insight into God's disapproval. They had this unbelievable blessing from God through Jesus that Everything that they would have needed was given to them, and they squandered it. And Paul looks at this Corinthian church and says, the same is true for you. Paul said earlier in his letter that you've been given all of these spiritual gifts, that you're literally lacking nothing, and what have you done with those gifts? You began patting yourself on the back, saying, man, aren't we special? You begin taking your teachers like Paul and Apollos and Cephas and raising them up to this divine status. And then you begin trying to one-up each other as if you had something to prove. You took all of these blessings from God and then you turned them into your own self-confidence, which led to your idolatry, which will always lead to evil. All right, so let's take a step out of this story for a moment and let's talk about this church, the here and now what do we take from all of this? You know, if there could be any church that could be counted as blessed, this church would be one of them. During a global pandemic, when churches all over the world were shutting their doors, some of them for good, this church, while we closed for a little bit, was able to open back up and stayed steady throughout. During or whenever the pandemic began to reside and people and churches began to open their doors again, Many churches still are not open because they don't have the capacity to do it, and our church grows a number every single week. In the middle of the pandemic, whenever the world and we should have been financially paralyzed, this church gave more on Mission Sunday than I've ever seen them give. 
We, we started an online ministry. We renovated spaces that are now being used by our community. And here's the danger. is to fall into this mindset that we have it all figured out. <laughs> Look at us. <laughs> Look what we've done. Look what we've sustained. And this is a warning to the Corinthians, but it's also a warning to us that God is the one who makes all of this happen. And the moment you forget that is the moment you begin taking good things and elevating, elevating them to idols. Paul continues. Right here. There we go. Paul continues in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil. That word desire in, in the Greek, it's the word to lust after. That we might not lust after evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and then were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. What is Paul talking about here? <laughs> like what things took place? W what people rose up? So remember, Paul is using his Bible to talk about the condition of the human heart. And he's just picking up in the story right where he left off in the previous verses. So the people of Israel... They've been delivered from Egypt. They're being cared for through God by shade and water and food. Finally, they arrive at this great mountain where Moses goes up and to give them, to give them further guidance, to go and talk with God. But the people, as they're waiting, they become impatient. They want deliverance now. They want clarity now. They want answers now. And so what happens when you become impatient, you fall back into your old habits and that's exactly what they did. And they used the leader's brother Aaron to actually create their God out of jewelry that they brought with them from Egypt, molding it into a cow. Why do they do this? Like, What drives a person to receive so much from God and to slap his hand away at the first sign of inconvenience? What convinces somebody that God doesn't care or that he's not listening despite all the previous signs that point and prove otherwise. Well, their reason is your reason is my reason. Paul says it this way in the next verse, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, there's this inward tendency to take matters into your own hands, to puff out your own chest, to do things the way you think they need to be done. And this isn't a new problem. This was something Abraham did. When God promised him a son in his old age, and when it didn't come at the right time, he took matters into his own hands. This happened with the people when Moses went up on the mountain, and God wasn't working on their timetable, and so they brought God to them and created him out of gold. And we do it all the time. When we stand in our understandings, our traditions, our liberties, our accountability, our own ability, 
You know, one of the worst phrases that's become popular over the years, I hear it all the time. When something happens, a person will say, oh, well, that's between me and God. Like that, you can just take a step back because this one, this one's just between me and God. And that's a lie. It's just a lie. It's never been just between you and God. And it's never been designed to be just between you and God. If you truly are the body of Christ, then you don't have the liberty or the permission to have a a faith that is only vertical. This is Paul's warning. Let anybody who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But luckily, we have a God who is faithful. Let's say those three words out loud. God is faithful. He is faithful. To Abraham, he was faithful to Abraham and Sarah when they took matters into their own hands and sexually abused their Egyptian slave. They had a child, but God was faithful and blessed both families in the end. God was faithful when Moses came down off the mountain and saw God's chosen people worshiping this other God and indulging in disgusting sexual vices. God was faithful and still delivered them to their promised land. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. You know, there's truth in that. You see that truth in the book of Job. If you don't know the story, the devil, he approaches God's throne because that's all the devil has the power to do is approach God on his throne. So the devil approaches God and he says, God, let's talk about your, your servant, your, the man after your heart, Job. You know, he's super faithful, but it's because of all the blessings that you give him. All these great things happening in his life, of course he's going to praise you. You take all of that away from him, I guarantee he'll curse your name. It's as if the devil knows something about us, that our circumstances often dictate our faithfulness. And so God agrees. You can read about this story in Job, but God agrees under one circumstance. You cannot take his life. God established boundaries of temptation because if the devil didn't have boundaries, all of us would be destroyed. But you know, this is one of those verses that so often it sounds so good, it gets taken out of context by well-meaning people and twisted to mean something it doesn't mean. What many of us read in this verse is something like, well, God won't give you any more than you can handle, right? But isn't that one of the greatest temptations that we face? Thinking that we can handle anything in this world on our own. But that's the very opposite of everything we've been talking about up to this point. And each of us can actually not reach very far in our past and recognize the things that we were not able to do simply by our own will. Every moment we face, without God's help, we will mess up at some capacity. There's a big difference in I can't handle this, and I can't handle this without God's help. God won't give you more than you can handle without his help, because God is faithful. God is faithful to us, and he will provide you a way of escape, a way you can endure it. And so Paul ends the text we're going to cover this morning by saying once again, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's Job. I forgot to put up Job for you. Flee from idolatry. 
Flee from this false power that you hold so tightly to. It's, you know, it's easy to see these ancient people as barbaric whenever we think about these idols, about molding this cow that they think would somehow give them fulfillment and prosperity. You know, all of this in the text, it just looks archaic to us. You know, the Canaanites, it was uh, Israelites' neighbors during this time, they had a false god. It was a god, Moloch. And the image of this god was the image of a bull. And they would make these giant statues of a bull head with its arms held out like this. It would have an open mouth. Smoke would be billowing out of the open mouth because of a fire lit down in the statue's belly. And what the Canaanites would do is they would bring their children to the statue and they would toss the child into the bull's arms, which would roll down into the fire of the statue's belly. Children, sacrifices. Who would do such a barbaric thing? And yet we sacrifice our children all the time for our phones, our jobs, our addictions, because we have our loves disordered. One of my favorite definitions of sin comes from St. Augustine. You know, oftentimes when we think of sin, we think of those nasty, dirty, dark things over here. St. Augustine describes it this way. The essence of sin, he said, is disordered love. Disordered love. Meaning that we often love less important things more and more important things less than we ought to. And this disordered prioritization of love, it often leaves us feeling unfulfilled, hopeless, even guilty when we really think about it. Let me give you an example of this. If you love your job more than you love your family, that is disordered love. Your job is good. Your family is good. But if you choose your job over your family, it's going to create disunity. It's going to create disruption. And what happens is you often... Uh, work on later in life, and you look back at your job, and you begin to resent it, saying it's the reason that your family is in such disarray, but it wasn't your job that did that. It was a disordered prioritization of your love, and idols are the ultimate disordered love, because anything, because they are anything more important to you and God, Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. It's a disordered love. It distracts you and gives you a false hope. And we all have them. Every single one of us in this room, Christians, Muslims, atheists alike, we all worship something. This is from David Wallace. American author, I don't think he's a Christian, but he said this in a commencement speech in 2005 at Kenyon College. He says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship is going to eat you alive. If you worship money and things, 
If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches and parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. But the trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. You know, God is against idols because when the pieces of our life are in their proper place, we can actually enjoy them and him at their very best. For example, if a person becomes an idol for you, you will begin squeezing the life out of them because only one person has the ability to sustain God, and that's Jesus. And when we worship Jesus, we can love people around us at a greater capacity because our center, our identity, isn't defined by them. Idols are such fickle things. Be it a person or alcohol or sex or anything, they make for cruel gods. My buddy, when I was talking to him about this sermon, he told me that his idol growing up was baseball. His averages went up and down. His performance, it swayed. He had good days and he had bad days. It was ruthless when he didn't perform, and it was easy when he did. Man, doesn't that sound like the schizophrenic gods of ancient times that always had people worried about angering them? And yet the God that we worship is constant. He's always forgiving. He's always loving. He's never changing. He is faithful. One of the biggest traits of an idol is that we are usually blinded to them. They become normal to us. We don't even see them. In fact, that's one of the allure and the power of an idol. We usually don't know we have one unless it's attacked or taken away. And so in your life, you might be thinking, I don't know what my idol is. Here's an easy way. Easy way to know if you have an idol, poke it. If it's an idol, it's going to show its teeth. It's going to bark back. They always do. Try turning off the news for a week. Try not stocking the fridge with beer for a month. Try throwing away the sweets that you have stockpiled in your pantry. Try canceling your Netflix subscription. Try deleting social media from your phone. Your idol is not going to tolerate you ignoring it. It's gonna, you will feel the bite the moment you turn your back on it. It's going to scream at you, how dare you walk away from me? You, you are nothing without me. You think you'll find fulfillment and hope out there? You won't. You'll come back. But here's the secret. The longer and the further you walk away from your idols the weaker they become. Jesus is there in the distance. He's been waiting for you to turn your focus away from the trap just long enough to see that he's been there the entire time, waiting. And whenever you finally do get to Jesus, don't feel like you need to defend him or justify the reason that you've been away from him for so long. 
Charles Spurgeon says it this way. The gospel is like a caged lion. It doesn't need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. Flee from your idols. Turn your eyes to Jesus and release the gospel in your life. Let's pray. God, what a blessing it is to have you as our faithful, constant, loving, and forgiving God. God, we are so thankful that we don't have to rely on these fickle gods that promise us so much and leave us feeling just as empty on the other side of them. God, I pray for anybody in here who has, who has identified their God, their false idol that they are worshiping, the thing they hold on to to give them value and meaning and purpose. God, and I pray that you will give them the strength to walk away from it, to identify it for what it is, to come to you. And God, I pray for those who are still not sure what their idol is. I pray that they will be honest with themselves this morning, this week, that they will poke at the things that might be controlling them, the things that are keeping them from a true relationship with you. Father, for those who are in here who are hearing the gospel for the first time, God, we pray that it will have its transforming effects on their life, that they will see the value and the need of it. The gospel is like a caged lion. All we need to do is release it, and it will do the rest. Father, give us courage and boldness as we enter into this world. Help us be the light, as we sang earlier, in a very dark world. We say this prayer in the name of our Savior, who makes all of this possible, who is our God, our shepherd, the one and only, our, the truth, the way, the life, Jesus Christ. Amen.